You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Trish Mueller, retired and former CMO of The Home Depot and co-founder of Mueller Retail Consulting. Trish has a true passion about leadership and talent development, and part of the reason I asked her to come on the show. And we talk a lot about how leaders can think about their own personal leadership development, how they develop their teams, as well as cover some of the top questions that she gets asked by CMOs and leaders that she's mentoring and advising in terms of when your leadership doesn't agree with how great you think your talent is, or what's the hurdle that she faced when she was a young CMO or the perils of working with your peers in the C-suite. We cover a lot of ground today, and I hope you enjoy this show with Trish. Well, Trish, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with your background, because I I know you're semi-retired, but let's go back in time, if you will, and just kind of give me the rundown. Where have you been and any pivotal twists along the way? Sure. Actually, I'm a third generation retailer. And I'd have to say the very beginnings of my career were when I was six years old, I got to visit my grandfather at the Sears store that he ran. And he let me sit in his chair behind his desk in his office. (laughs) And I can remember looking out at my shoes and thinking, because my feet weren't touching the floor, wow, this would be fun to do. 
And I kind of took off from there and paid a lot of attention through the years to what he and both of my uncles were doing. They were Sears, Montgomery Ward, and J.C. Penney guys, and just fell in love with selling stuff. And so from there, you know, went to college in uh, SUNY Plattsburgh and graduated magna cum laude with a business degree and a specialty in retail and went to work at Montgomery Ward and just never looked back, just have had an incredibly fun career, moved 15 times. And I think that the, the pivotal twists in my career pretty much happened when I showed up to work each time someone would say, hey, you're doing this, you report to this location next week because retail is pretty unforgiving. And at least in my experience in the early years, you were you know, an assistant store manager one day and a store manager the next, but you had to pack up and move. And so you know, after 15 moves, I'm happy to be retired in Austin, but it was a wonderful ride. And I think that the other turns in my career that really contributed to my success were my mentors. Mm-hmm. I had multiple folks along the way that taught me different things at different times. And I'll never forget, there was one woman early in my career, she was Indian, and we did a store walk with the regional manager and the store manager who I reported to didn't really do very well. And she pulled me to the side and said, you know, sometimes we can't learn from the best, but we can also learn what not to do from people who aren't the best. And I thought that was a really, really telling comment, both, you know, reading the tea leaves about my store manager but also making mental notes myself in my career of, wow, you know, if I ever get to this point, I'm not going to do that kind of learning. My grandfather continued to be an incredibly strong mentor to me through, you know, all of my life until he died. And you know, had me think about retail very hard before I went into it. He actually said at one point to me when I told him I wanted to go to college and become a retailer, he said, well, let me just be clear. Retail is something you either love or you get the hell out. And I thought that was really interesting and cautionary and really great of him. And then all the way through to the basically formative years later in my career, He sat my husband and I down and said, hey, you're living through the retail revolution. There's too many stores. This is about 25 years ago before we had the internet really surging and before mobile phones had been invented. And he said, it's going to shake out, but it's going to be a wild ride. So prepare financially so that you can either survive the ride or jump off the roller coaster if it gets to be too tough. So I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah. It really defined how I thought about my career, how my husband and I thought about spending and investing our earnings. And so that was great. Another mentor who made me really successful was the CEO of uh, Shop NBC when I was there. He was a mentor to me at Montgomery Ward and then left and, and hired me. And he through whatever he could find at me to challenge me and then would coach me along the way about how to think about different decisions. And probably the last mentor that stays with me is Eric Peterson, who was a head merchant at Home Depot while I was there. And he was an accidental mentor because we're both morning people and we'd be walking in in the morning at 6.30 to the office and he had his triple venti, you know, <laughs> espresso in his hand and he would kind of coach me on the culture of the company and I would share concerns I had with him and he'd say, oh, don't worry about that. What you really should be focusing on is this or, hey, I heard in the grapevine the other day that you had a meeting and, you know, I don't think some of the people really came away feeling very good or, you know, he would kind of just drop little thoughts for me to consider. And he was just a lot of fun to work with. And he retired probably three years before I did from Home Depot after a long and very successful career there. So just a fantastic human being. And he's now enjoying life and wine out in California. (laughs) I love it. I love it. 
Well, Trish, I know mentors is a big component of what you do now in semi-retirement. I keep saying semi-retirement. You're not really retired. You're busier now. I know it took us a while to schedule this, but we can talk more about that in a minute. But we have done a webinar together and you really have this true passion about leadership and talent development. And you, you know, just helped us understand all the mentors you've had throughout your career. And what was the spark around this passion of leadership and talent development? Yeah, I think it really came to me late in my career, unfortunately. And I think that the passion was really ignited by having a couple of amazing people on my team who were comfortable chatting with me and sitting down and seeing the potential that they had was really invigorating. But what really kind of caught fire for me was we were in a talent planning meeting at the Home Depot and I was, I guess, complaining (laughs) to my peer group, which included Mark Holyfield, who's the EVP of logistics and supply chain at Home Depot. And Mark is very seasoned professional. And he said, you know, if you're working too hard, you should look at your team. And I went home that evening and really sat and thought about it. And I thought, wow, you know, I have some really good people, but I haven't set them free and I'm working way too hard and they want more. And I I needed to figure out how to engage them and back off a little bit. And so I started studying leadership and reading, you know, different publications. Forbes has some really good ones. So does uh, Harvard Business Review. And I launched on this journey of figuring out how to empower my team and what steps I could take to do that. And a lot of it was the psychology behind it. It was less about blocking and tackling and more about listening and conversing and putting them in different forums to help them learn and grow. So I learned from Mark that I needed to reconfigure how I thought about doing my job instead of doing the work or leading the people doing the work or even developing the strategy. It really was more about acquiring and then inspiring and empowering people to develop and drive the strategy themselves. And so I talk to people that I mentor about this because many times we as CMOs equate success with you know, being given credit for developing strategy and being given credit for the outcomes. And it's actually the reverse. And very much so, by the way, at Home Depot, it was less about you taking credit and more about you giving the credit to your team. And I think a lot of people, especially younger CMOs, think that they need to stay in the limelight to build their career. And they do, but they build confidence in management when they have a strong team. And the way to get that in front of management is to continually reinforce, you know, when you receive a compliment, hey, great job on the Memorial Day ad campaign and the sales were fantastic by saying, hey, thank you so much. I just want you to know what a great job Susan and John did developing whatever components there are to be given credit for. It's always kind of flipping it and bringing other people into the conversation that work for you and developing confidence with management that, you know, you're leading a group of professionals. I love that. I love leading a group of professionals. So how did you begin thinking about your own career development? You know, like, where did you start? I have always been a very curious person and an avid reader. And so whenever I ran into trouble, I would always pick up a book. I would always go out and research you know, what are the different resources that are out there? I would ask peers, you know, what kind of books to think about. And I would just sit 
and read and study what other people were doing. I'm sitting here looking at some of the my favorite books on my bookshelf right now, and I just love the book Insanely Simple, which was about the Apple strategy of just cutting through and making things easy and so forth. And you know, reading. I read Thriving on Chaos, you know, which is so apropos when you work in retail and just thinking about how to push through crazy times. I also, in terms of leadership, would read a book myself and then share it with my team. If I felt like it was informative to me, I thought it might be helpful to them. And over the years, had several opportunities to do book clubs where I would let the team select a book that was meaningful to them and then we would read it together. So it was an ongoing effort to just stay in touch with what's going on and to make sure that I was up to speed on different theories of management and how people chose to communicate and motivate their team. And then the other piece, obviously, which we've already talked about is mentors. I found it to be really helpful to ask people that I thought were successful, how did they go about doing certain things? And in the retail world, there were always people available to share different thoughts and techniques on how they led people and motivated people. Love it. You talked about, uh, you already kind of addressed this, but I'm just wondering, maybe you can elaborate on it. The notion of, you know, going from that, I'm a star and I'm getting advanced in my career to the, you know, being able to lead people that are actually going to do the work. And I think we've talked about this prior in prior conversations, but I would love to have you talk about like, you know, when did you, because there's, there's various layers that you go through, right? You're the independent contributor when you start your career, then you become a manager of other independent contributors, but you're still doing work. And then you become managers of managers and keeps going. So talk about that progression, if you wouldn't mind, and how you thought about it. Yeah. I mean, early in my career, I thought about outworking everybody else. I mean, candidly in retail, it is about showing up and working harder than anybody else. It doesn't mean that you advance, but it does help you hold your position. You advance by going up the chain, if you will, in management. And I had always thought about, okay, how do I get to the next level? And I was pretty overt in my career and just asking that exact question, you know, what do I need to do to, to get this job or that job? But as I rose up and was leading people, I found one thing I found to be very helpful was never to get too far from the work. Not so much that you needed to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself anymore, but that your people knew that if need be, you were willing to do that. And then, you know, working elbow to elbow with them and making them feel valued and that you were part of the team versus just the barking boss, if you will. (laughs) And then, you know, thinking about leading a team really entails making that team as smart as you are or smarter. And in my later years, I actually hired people who I thought were smarter than I was. And I did that because the old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And if you think you know everything, then you're you're not going to be listening much and you're not going to be learning anything. And I found that when I hired people smarter, I learned so much from them and they were so enthused by the fact that I was genuinely interested in what they thought that they were energized by that. And they worked very hard, not just for me, but for their own careers. The other thing that is really important, and it was a big hurdle initially, and frankly, an excuse that I had to overcome was, well, there really isn't any training for this and the company that I work for. And in retail, again, it's not 
as formal as it could be or as it probably is in some companies like GE, for example, or Google, where things are highly structured and they have training for everything. And so rather than the excuse of, oh, there's, you know, our HR department is terrible and we have no training, I just decided I'm going to build that training myself and I'm going to study, you know, successful companies and what they do. And my husband, luckily for me, has always worked with me. So he was a really great sounding board and he has a degree in psychology. So he helped Mm. to inform, you know, some of the behavioral aspects of how I thought about my team. And I just went about building a formal program. And I've talked about this publicly before. I think some of the key things I learned later on in the process was to engage the team in the development themselves. And I had this crazy clock that was given to me when I was at Montgomery Ward by a guy named Charlie Hayden, who was the head of the home division. And it said, the first step toward success is taken when you refuse to be a prisoner of the environment in which you first find yourself. <laughs> and and it's, it was a really telling thing. I mean, I hung that clock on my wall for the next 25 years of my career. And I think that it applied mostly inward to myself, but then later on to my team. And I applied that in the sense that, look, if you want to be developed, you're going to have to step in and get involved in your own development. And that took many forms. It took the form of people actually being the champion for you know a day of offsite learning to people being champions for their own careers by reading different materials or participating in coaches you know, direction and so forth. So the whole path was kind of ironically ending at Home Depot, the DIY Kings, you know, was how do you do it yourself in terms of making yourself successful? (laughs) And how do I do it myself in terms of as a leader, making my team successful? And it was a homemade, homegrown approach that fortunately for me worked and I'm happy to talk in more detail about that, but it was really more about engagement of the team and studying what would motivate them based on their personalities and far less of a textbook exercise at all. I think it says something about the culture, the do-it-yourself, that you did it yourself <laughs> at, <laughs> at Home Depot. That's hilarious. And what a great quote or, or saying on the clock. That's amazing. You coach other leaders today or mentor other leaders. How do you advise them? What's a couple of things that you start with them on? Yeah, I'm a good listener. And I, when I first sit down with someone, I listen just to what they have going on and what is exciting in their life and what they're not happy about and let them talk about you know where they see themselves headed. Then I ask them what activities they're taking to get there. And it's always fascinating to me that there's so many people are so ambitious, but they're not necessarily acting in a way that fulfills their success. So if you ask someone, you know, where do you want to be in five years? And they tell you they want to be in Seattle, but they just need to make this trip to Florida first. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of that. It's like people don't necessarily connect the dots for themselves of, hey, if I really want to do X, then I need to take these four steps to get there. And so it's, you know, pretty simple for me without having the day-to-day pressures, they have to sit back and listen and evaluate and then kind of turn the mirror to them and say, well, here's what you just told me. How well do you think that that's going to support 
what you'd ultimately like to happen. And then it's fun because the light bulb will go on and they'll say, oh, wow, I'm self-sabotaging myself, aren't I? And and I'll always (laughs) ask another question. I don't know. How do you think you're self-sabotaging yourself? You know, and they'll give more information. But it's so joyful to be able to be that sounding board for people. And I spent a lot of time myself building a career without very much science behind it. And now it's nice to be able to give back and help others by talking about the experiences I've had and see if it applies at all. I'd say more directly, some of the things I do talk about with some of the folks I mentor is their personal brand. And, you know, as I've touched on a little bit, your personal brand isn't just about who you are, but it's how well you bring forward others. And so kind of a secondary piece of being a great leader is having a brand for your team. And my brand for the last team I led at Home Depot was they were the best team in retail marketing. And, you know, the results played out that that became the case. And it became the case in terms of, you know, the marketing ROI and the marketing teams. Many awards were run, won and publicized and continue to be today by some of those same folks. And, And I think the third thing, which I've also talked about fairly extensively is marketing, marketing. And, and it's kind of the funniest thing, you know, the old saying goes that the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? And it's because they're so busy making shoes for everyone else. They don't take time to make the shoes for their kids. And so in the marketing world, our job is to sell things, sell ideas, sell products and so forth, services. But oftentimes we're so busy doing our job, we don't spend the time talking about the job our team is doing and the results that they're delivering. And I think marketing as a profession, particularly specific to retail at least, is woefully unappreciated in most companies. And I think that contributes to the high level of turnover of marketing professionals, which is sad because companies lose traction when they change people. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that marketing ends up being this kind of catch-all, you know, of list makers and list box checkers and in the end of the day the if leadership can't tie out the results that they're seeing on the bottom line and to the shareholders then marketing is not valued i also think that some marketers who hear that message might misunderstand that that's about self-aggrandizement and bragging and taking credit for things that maybe an entire team of people is responsible for so for example if you have a fantastic Black Friday sales performance, the marketer could say, wow, the marketing team did a great job of delivering those sales. And that would be really inaccurate and it would be very short-sighted. Instead, it would go something like, wow, what an incredible Black Friday. We were so glad to be a part of helping drive traffic, helping make customers aware of our products. But the stores did an amazing job of delivering great service. And our operations leadership did a great job of making sure we had the staff and our logistics team did a great job of working with us to make sure we had the inventory that went into the ads. So you're basically broadening your perspective and at the same time saying marketing worked really hard with all these people to make sure that we had the right outcome, but those people worked really hard too. So those are all the ways that I think about it. That's a really keen insight, and specifically in an industry or sector that marketers probably at times feel like they're constantly fighting for that I should exist <laughs> and to be kind of selfless in the praise for what's going on. I, it's probably not always the first thing you think of. So I think that's very wise. And one of the 
areas, we've talked a little bit about the leader, but I want to talk about the team. So you're advising or mentoring a, another leader and maybe they're struggling or maybe they're just trying to figure out how to develop their individual team members. What's worked for you in the past? I think that the most success I've had in assessing my team and building their skills is just spending time with them. I learned so much about them over a beer. Or in one case, I, I learned a tremendous about, amount about one of my guys in this exercise that we did. I took them off site to the Alliance Theater for basically public speaking development. The entire team went, and it was because when we were in front of leadership, I wasn't necessarily always comfortable that they were confident and prepared. And the theater program was offered to businesses to help professionals learn how to present themselves, how to think about, you know, keeping eye contact with the audience and things that I had been kind of harping on, but I didn't want to become that broken record. And I wanted them to hear it from an expert third party. And during this session, one of the things that the theater group leader asked us to do was get up and talk about ourselves. And I had never experienced it quite that way. You know, we all talk about our resume and so forth, but people went very deep into, you know, where they went to high school and whether the high school was big or small and whether when they went on to college, they felt big or small. And there was one particular person who was just wore their heart on their sleeve and just shared with the group a lot about themselves. And it really explained a lot about their workplace behavior and it helped me understand how to motivate that person. Interesting. So that was an unusual way. And when I said over a beer, I, I'm also a big supporter of time outside the office. So much so that, you know, even in the culture at Home Depot was very much work driven, but also caring about people. And yet, because it was Atlanta and there was so much traffic, people didn't want to hang out after work. Right. They wanted to get in their car and just fight the traffic and get home. And so I found ways to take folks out during business hours and get them out of the office, you know, have lunch and go to some activity, you know, go to Dave and Buster's, for example. And then just get, you know, after people have a beer, they're a little more relaxed and, you chat with them, you know, tell me about your kids, you know, where'd you grow up? You learn, you know, what makes them smile. You know, you observe what they're excited about right now. And then from that, you can also start to build on what their strengths are, you know, what they're passionate about. So the next job opportunity that comes up, you know, that is right up the alley of someone on your team, you wouldn't have known it if you hadn't had that beer and they said, oh, I'm so passionate about X or Y or Z. And so, you know, I did that very informal assessment. And then, of course, the formal assessment's always about how well are they doing in the role they have, what feedback is coming from peers. You know, it was very common practice at Home Depot for us to reach out cross-functionally and get the business leader that that marketer served to give feedback and then to factor that feedback into the review. And so those were very formal, but it, it was great to have the, you know, this particular manager's public speaking skills have some work to be done, or this person has difficulty meeting deadlines. So, you know, maybe they need a little bit more project management training or so forth. So all of those things went into it. And then I developed a more formal process that one of our HR leads suggested, and it was really helpful. She had developed this one page summary that had a photograph of the person 
the time they started with the company, the date, what roles they had had prior, what education they had, and then what their key strengths were and their development needs. And then when you have all that on a page, you get a great snapshot of the person. But then the really important part, which a lot of people don't do is, okay, so if these are the developmental needs, what actions are you going to take? And it was bipartisan, if you will. It was, what are they going to do? What do you expect them to do? And what will you do? Because this is, it's not a situation where the leader has to own every component. It could be, and I've, I've done this before, I had one individual, an amazing data analytics person, so smart, but not as strong in conveying the so what about the data. And that person, I assigned them to, to read a really great book that I had heard about, and the title escapes me at the moment, but it was basically kind of one of those data for dummies type of books. (laughs) And it was more outward facing than inward. This person wasn't a dummy when it came to data, but they couldn't get the the listener to understand the desired outcome. And so this helped with, you know, it, it literally demonstrated these are the types of charts you could use, and these are probably the more effective ones, and here's why. And it made this person much more impactful in providing insights to the team that they could relate to. So I guess that just is one example of how it plays out when you sit and and you're mindful and thoughtful about what would benefit that person. But it's not just about you doing the work. That person buys in and goes and does the work that needs to be done also. Right, right. Well, I love the notion of that one pager because it's clean and easy. So is that something you did for yourself? Did you show it to them or it was your guide, if you will, for them that you used? I don't think that I ever showed it to them. Mm. They knew about it. Right. (laughs) I mean, there was nothing on there. Candidly, I could have. There was nothing on there that said, you know, this person's not going anywhere, so to speak. There was never anything on there that wasn't, it was all more fact-based and assessment-based, but it could have been shown to them because it was their career thumbnail on one page. But now I yeah, I never took the time to show it to them. I just partnered with them in, in their annual review and then their semi-annual touch base to say, hey, here's what we said we were going to do. How is it coming? How do you think you're doing? I would also say I always prided myself for the length of my career on the review process that I will go on the record and say, I think that the standard evaluation that businesses do is just, it's a box check. It is useless unless there's some activity tied to it outside of that review. And I pride myself on the fact that throughout my career, people always knew where they stood and it didn't take a piece of paper semi-annually or annually to let them know that. And I also was very preemptive. It was always my goal to never write a bad review. I always wanted them to know, oh, I've got to work on A, B, and C. And then when the review came up, A, B, and C were absent because they were no longer issues. Or A, B, and C came up in the positive. You know, you've delivered, over-delivered on A. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A and B C looks great, but I think the gotcha review is just a total waste of time and poor productivity and not great at creating shareholder value either. So I think that them knowing that I had a document that really wasn't tied to an annual review at all, but was more tied to their development was appreciated. Interesting. Well, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I got recommended a book um, by a colleague. The book is The Culture Code, which is The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups by Daniel Doyle, I believe is the author. But is the team dynamics, so the, the actual interpersonal relationships between the team and how cohesive they are and how much they operate together. In your experience, how did you approach that? Because in corporate environments, I think a lot of times we're incentivized not to work together, <laughs> but it's always kind of, uh, you know, you've had those bad experiences, I'm sure as well, where it feels forced or manufactured to do that. But I was just curious what you've tried or, or what worked in your past. Yeah. I, well, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about getting the teams off site and getting them into social settings. I think if I had to put a caption on my philosophy, it would be team build for humanity. And that sounds grandiose, but what it really comes down to is if you can get the people on your team to see each other as human beings, as moms and dads and passionate humanitarians, you know, we had people on the team that would do crazy things on their off time to go out and feed homeless children, for example. And if people see each other that way, then it becomes in the business environment a much more personalized interface than that guy that runs this function's a jerk. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, hold on a second. That guy that runs this function has a special needs child and he goes home every night and spends four hours, you know, trying to help his child or he has lots of demands on him outside of work. I think people knowing things about each other that humanize them makes the workplace more pleasant as well. And I think people are more inclined to be helpful. I think how you accomplish that is you get people in situations where they are social and where they are able to learn about each other in a stress-free environment where there's nobody's <laughs> jobs on the line and they're just trying to figure out who they are. And I'll give you a couple of specific examples. I took the team offsite one time to Chateau Elan, which is a resort north of Atlanta, about an hour. And we drove up on a Tuesday afternoon and spent the night and we did a cooking class the evening before the strategic offsite on the next day. And the cooking class was just mind blowing. We had, there were a dozen of us and we cooked our own dinner and the chef had pre-packaged, almost like a blue apron type of deal, but cooked with you and told you how to prepare. Well, one of the guys who I happen to be standing next to, who is very much a free spirit and very much a humanitarian in his own right, he proceeded without any directions to just go at it and make it. <laughs> And he made a completely different outcome, but still a very delicious meal. And what I learned from that is, wow, this is a person that's probably not all that interested in direction, but excited about getting to the successful end. And as a leader, I guess I have to be more flexible to say, look, you know, it's less about you 
cooking my way as long as you can make dinner. Right. You know, so that was a, a really interesting thing. And then standing next to him all evening and hearing about his world travels and what his kids were doing and his wife was doing and seeing how excited he was about certain things helped me relate better to him. And so I think those types of activities, it's not a box check. And I think it would be very sad if anyone listening took away from this, oh, well, I'll take my team for an offsite and we'll do a cooking class. That's really not the point. That's kind of the tool. But the desired outcome is you being present and saying, my goal is I'm going to work through the team at different points and try to learn as much as I can about them. And same thing, you know, the unintended outcome of that Alliance Theater, you know, learning about one of my team in a very deep and personal way that I never expected, but that would not have happened in a meeting or in a corporate environment, you know, structured type of situation. And so I think the unstructured helps you to get your team into a position to be vulnerable, to be open. And then I'd say I'd be way too Pollyanna if I led you to believe that all of this resulted in us never having any conflicts. That's not the case. Obviously, there's personalities. People are human. They have good days and bad days, and they push each other's buttons. And I learned through the years to always, when someone came to me, to always say, if it was a complaint about another person, wow, that doesn't sound like John. I know he's A, B, and C, so have you tried talking with them about it? And if they said, no, they're just upset, then my answer would be, well, I think you should go and sit down with him and explain what about these behaviors is concerning to you and then come back and let me know how it goes. And I would tell you that 90% of the time that took care of it. 10%, it didn't. And there was a deep issue. And what I would do is pull both people in together and we, I'd do a, an intervention, if you will and try to find common ground for the two of them. And I mean, it always started out with, look, you guys have to work together. So let's get all the issues on the table and figure it out. And a lot of times it's emotional more than anything else. And I'll, I'll give you a fun example. This dates way back when I was in a much smaller company and there were two women who I respected both of. And we were in a broader meeting. They were both there with you know several other people. And something came up where a failure had occurred with some topic. And the meeting ended and I went into my office and my door was open and I heard the two of them and they were just going at it. And the, the one said to the other, you really made me look bad. You know, now Trish thinks I'm an idiot and that's not even accurate what you said. And it was like to the point where the rest of the team could hear them. So I went out and I brought them in my office and I closed the door and I said, I know this is a huge moment for both of you. And one is frustrated that the other did whatever turned on them publicly. But let me explain something to you both. This topic is not going to show up in either of your annual reviews. The failure that happened, we all learned from. So you shouldn't be upset with each other. You should be glad that we learned from it. And you should be really glad to know that I'm moving on. And I would like you to as well. <laughs> <laughs> and they both looked at each other and they looked at me and they started laughing. And so it's just like letting the air out of the situation for them because they were so frustrated. And it comes about because emotionally, the one was angry and the other was embarrassed and they were both fearful. And so it's like, how do you as a leader be sensitive to that and take that out of the equation? Well, you know, as you described that example, and not to bring this book back up, but the, I think you're the living embodiment of the culture code. Because in your example, there's two components that have stuck with me from that book. One is this sense of safety. Like if people don't feel safe, it creates all kinds of problems. And you diffusing that issue to say, I'm moving on, <laughs> you know, a lot, I think created a space where, oh, okay, it's okay to fail because we learned 
it's not okay to fail, but it's okay to learn from our failure and move on. And then the other thing that you used was the word we. And the second concept that they talk about is this notion of belonging and making sure that it's all about the group and leaders not using the word I as much as we as one small example. And so anyway, I just wanted to point that out because I think it's a fantastic example. And in the example was the embodiment of those two components. Great. You know, I'd love to talk about some top questions you get from CMOs or other leaders for that matter. And I, I know one that we've talked about before, and I'd love to have you talk about it for listeners is, you know, how how do you deal with that situation where you believe in your people, but your management doesn't see it the same way? Yeah, I always ask questions. So if a leader that I reported to said, oh, that person, you know, it shouldn't be in that job. And I would just ask, why? Why do you see it that way? And let them explain. And there, in some cases, would come to light a misunderstanding of the role the person had where someone would be very upset and say they're not doing A, B, and C, and then I would have to correct the perception and say, well, actually, A, B, and C is actually this other person's job. So I think some of the disconnects can be easily resolved. The deeper ones that are more, I'll say, personality, because let's face it, there is a situation that some leaders like to like the people that work for them. I don't subscribe to that. I actually had people who I didn't really like that much that I deeply respected as people and had working for me ongoing. And I had people that I really liked a lot that I fired because they didn't belong in the culture or the company was holding them back in their career. And I think I'll segue to that is if you get to the point where your leadership is not bought in to the capability of an individual on your team, then you have to work very hard to make sure to develop that person and to make them appear successful, assuming they are actually should be kind and say, assuming they are a successful individual that is just miscast or not understood by leadership, then you have to work hard to bring to light that person's capabilities and contributions. If there's some kernel of truth in the concerns of leadership, then you have to tackle those as well. And if you can't get the person up to snuff, then you have to take action. And the third one, which I just mentioned a bit ago, is where the person's perfectly capable and delivering results, and yet management, for whatever reason, does not relate well to that person, then you have to help that person leave because they will stagnate. And when they stagnate, lots of bad things happen to them. They're angry and unhappy why they can't ascend. They're blocking a slot that maybe somebody else could be moving into. And by the way, you're not doing them any favors in their career and what they could be achieving with a different company. And I've had this happen on several occasions where I have helped people leave and even including finding them another job that was a job that I knew they'd be happy with. And those people go on to be incredibly successful. And they're, in my mind, the I told you so's. <laughs> those are the people where I wanted and never did walk into my leader and say, I told you this was a great person. Look what they're doing over here at this company. Geez, too bad they left. <laughs> you know, it's just so frustrating. But there's a point in the time where you're just pushing a boulder up a hill and you have to recognize it and you also have to be a humanitarian on behalf of that individual that's suffering without even knowing why. And that's so frustrating for them and for you. So I just continue to think about it in terms of doing the right thing for the person. And sometimes that is not right at the time as far as they're concerned, but in the long run, it always seems to work out better than letting them sit in a position that they can't make you know any progress. Got it. Another question for you. What was a hurdle you faced as a young CMO? I think... 
The biggest challenge that I had was making myself understood. And I think over time that served me well as marketing got more and more complex. I think a lot of times when you're so close to what you do, you tend to talk in acronyms and every company has them. And you're in a room with someone who doesn't have the same playbook you do. And you're throwing all this information around. And then when you leave, the person's just scratching their head and saying, I have no idea what you just said. And they won't tell you that. I used to draw this diagram for my team all the time. It was a pie chart. And I draw a wedge into it, small wedge, and I'd write 10. And then I'd out to the side put 90% equals zero. <laughs> and and they're always like, okay, what does that mean? Well, 10% of the time, you're spending time telling people what you do. If that is a poor representation and you don't prepare and you don't present well, that 10% equals the 90% equals zero. So they basically heard from you. They don't know what your team did. And all the credit for the 90% of the time you spend not with them is zero because the 10% of the time you were with them explaining it, you didn't make yourself clear. And so I always worked really hard on communicating what made me most successful was being understood and being relatable. And in one of the roles that I took on in one company, my predecessor was an incredibly smart person and use what I'll call $25 words. And they would do that and they would leave the (laughs) stage after a presentation. And again, people would say, I have no idea what that person just said. So the first time I got on stage after I got that role, I came off stage and my peer group hugged me and they said, we understood every word you said. (laughs) And it's kind of a simple thing. And yet it was so exciting to them that I wasn't talking over their head. I wasn't frustrating them with jargon. And I think that's when you know you're really successful is when people that you work with can understand what you're saying and can buy in. And then you start hearing them saying it to others. Or when you're talking, they will clarify for you, which is kind of fun. Oh yeah, Trish talks about all that all the time. It's this, this, and this. And it's it's just fun, you know? <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's a great example of, you know, a reaction from your peers. But can you talk about the perils of working with the peers, maybe in the C-suite? I'd say if you don't do your job, someone else will always be happy to do it for you. (laughs) Whether that's the next guy or gal or whether someone does a land grab. When I got into one CMO role in the marketing function, the marketing team wasn't managing email. And I said, well, how is that possible? And they said, well, it's a digital thing. So the internet group has it. And then the more I was dug in, I found out that my predecessor didn't really understand or like the whole email aspect of the role. So they just never paid attention to it. And you can mess up a lot of things with email communications and marketing. And after several mistakes, my peer was happy to take it off my predecessor's hands and I had to fight to get it back. And I was very successful in doing that by partnering with him and demonstrating how little time he had to apply to it and how much success I could drive if he would give it back to me, which he did. But I think (laughs) it's a situation of you shouldn't be afraid of someone doing a land grab unless you're truly not engaged, in which case that's your own fault. And people who are wanting to land grab aren't successful in doing it if you are successful in the oversight of your function. And so I never really worried too much about land grabbing. I'm much more excited about being successful at what I had. I was never one of those CMOs that was like, I should be running PR. I should be running this. I was very respectful of the job that everybody did. 
And I always felt like, hey, my plate's pretty full. I'm happy. I'm doing a great job. And if someone wants to hand this to me, great. And at one point when I was at Home Depot, (laughs) social media was run by the communications and PR team, and they were doing a phenomenal job of it. And there was a tipping point where you know, Facebook started getting traction and so forth. And I didn't want social media at the time. I'm like, I don't want it. I'm good. It's unproven. They can keep it. And it became the reverse. It was the opposite of a land grab. It was like, no, really, you need to take this. (laughs) And so that kind of was fun. It kind of worked in my favor a little bit, I guess, because it was a negative, the reverse of a land grab. But, you know, we did take it over and make it successful. So again, I just, to bottom line it, yeah, if you don't, want to do the work, someone else will gladly take it off your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, I've got a series of questions I always ask everybody. So I thought we could tackle those. I love getting to know the person and kind of behind who I'm talking to. And and we've been getting to know each other this entire time. But I love this question, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? That's such a hard question, because I think the combination of all of my experiences made up who I am today. But I would say being a retailer and growing up in a third generation of retailers was a huge responsibility for me. I am an overachiever, type A, OCD, all the labels you could possibly want to slap on. And I never (laughs) wanted to disappoint my grandfather. I never wanted to fail. And I always felt like I had to be the best because I had him backing me and my uncles watching to see how well I did. So I'd say that was part one. I think another thing that was a formative moment in driving my work ethic was my dad, just a super hardworking guy. And he's in his mid seventies and he still works because he loves to work. But the phone rang, I think I was in high school. I think I was a junior. It was summertime and the phone rang and it was the place I was working. And it was a Saturday. And my dad said, oh yeah, no, she's here. Yep. Okay, sure. No, no problem. She'll be right in. And I didn't work on Saturday. And I turned to my dad. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, that was your job. And they're really slammed and they need you to come in. And I'm like, you didn't even ask me if I wanted to go. to." He said, no, I don't need to ask you because when your job comes and calls you, you go to work. <laughs> and I just, I mean, that's the kind of upbringing I had. And so I don't know that that's necessarily healthy that I would tell you, you know, we could talk for hours on that topic of balancing work and personal life. But, you know, I was just brought up that work comes first and one divorce later, I can tell you it doesn't, (laughs) but I would say all of that did drive me to not slack off and to always be there and always be striving to be the best. Yeah. Well, no, all those experiences to your point make up, they do make up who you are. So thank you for sharing. What fuels you? What drives you? Again, it's, I think it's ego. I think, you know, my husband always jokes around about how he has to really work hard to make sure my head stays small enough to fit through the door. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say I just love people and I love being the best at what I do. And I love the fact that my curiosity about people and what they want made me successful because I always enjoyed marketing and trying to figure out what would make people interested in the product and what people would be interested. And so the whole, you know, going back to being the best and so forth, and then being curious about people really has fueled my success. And it's been a lot of fun along the way. 
Well, most marketers are students of the business. So are there, you know, brands or companies or causes you think other people should take notice of or you're following these days? I follow a lot of companies. I would start with this. I think uh, very highly of Scott Galloway of L2. I don't know if you know him or not. He's just this brilliant mm-hmm. guy who has the ability to look across the space of marketing and kind of tease out the facts that really matter. And he's also, although he can be quite egotistical, he's actually pretty honest and humble. I mean, he admitted, he's admitted on numerous occasions he's been wrong about, you know, Amazon or whatever he's been calling out. But I I thoroughly enjoy him. And I think you learn a lot from listening to Scott. In terms of companies, I'd say this is one of those angel or devil situations, depending on your perspective, but Amazon, you Mm -hmm. know, never was a lover of Amazon in my retail career ever as, well, yeah, uh, yeah. as a consumer, (laughs) however, I love them (laughs) as a shareholder. I love them. So (laughs) you have to look at their passion for innovation and simplicity. You know, the fact that they don't have tremendous layers and layers and layers of management is pretty amazing. You can find fault with them and terms of some of the bad things that are happening because of Amazon's advancement and, you know, the argument about what are their social responsibilities. I mean, there's a whole lot of pain going on in the Seattle area right now about all the growth and the damage it's causing due to Amazon and Starbucks, which is fun. We love to hate successful companies, right? (laughs) Right. So, but I find them to be a pretty impressive company. And I also think a lot of Walmart as well. I mean, Walmart very easily could have gone quietly into the night and they're fighting like the Dickens to stay in the mix and to give Amazon a run for their money. And I have deep respect for them as well. And then in terms of causes, I am still looking for the right thing to get involved in, but I am extremely passionate still about veterans and what's happening with our vets. And I just continue to support financially several different organizations that are trying to help veterans and just passionate about it because of my family, you know, have been veterans and my brother-in-law is uh, retired from the military, but still active in the National Guard. And I'm just passionate about all of the people that work so hard to make sure that we can talk like we are about whatever we would like and we have freedom of speech and many other freedoms and prosperous place to, you know, raise our children. So that would be one of my most passionate topics. Thank you. Well, last question. What do you see for the future of marketing? Where do you think it's going? I think it is in a massive state of flux. And I think right now things are very perilous, candidly, in terms of the technology and privacy concerns. And I think we're not at a really good place legislatively in that most of our representation is aged and I'm being kind, but you know, when you have senators that are 80 and 90 years old, you know, not saying people aren't capable of learning and keeping up, but the perspective of having grown up a digital native, which, you know, the millennials have done is more informed about different technologies and platforms and what the potential for abuse is. And I don't think that it should be left to the businesses to legislate themselves. I think people well, I'd like to think people do the right thing, but sometimes they don't. And the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook is an example of that. And as a marketer, I think CMOs should protect themselves by thinking of the customer first and protect their companies by ensuring that you have ethics 
in place and that you have audits in place to make sure that you're doing the right thing with customers' data and that if you had to go to Washington and sit in, in a you know Senate panel that you would be able to answer the questions with confidence and knowledge that you know how things are working and that you've done everything you can to protect the customer. And so I'd say that could be a full-time job for someone on your team is just making sure that you're using your data correctly and ethically. I think it'll be at least a decade before we see things settle out with regard to the tools marketing's using and whether or not they're entitled or enabled in the future to use them. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always exciting to talk about marketing, both forward and backward looking. And I'm excited that you gave me the chance to share my knowledge with others. Oh, anytime. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 